0: Lord God, thank you uh, that you are here with us. And now through the power of your spirit, Lord God, and in the name of Jesus, we ask that you would help us to preach the gospel. Amen. It's been a year of preaching through the Revelation, and today we finally arrive at a verse that tells us just what it is that God wants second person, singular, aorist, imperative, simple command. This may surprise some people, but it's not store canned goods for the coming apocalypse. It's not be aware of strange Romanian dictators with a penchant for numerical tattoos or support the military industrial complex of the United States and, and Israel. The command is also not the commands to the seven churches, because we learned that the commands of the seven churches aren't to the seven churches, but to the seven angels sent, or the seven spirits sent to the seven churches. What Jesus asks of the seven churches is something rather different. He asks that they'd listen to someone read the book. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear, says Jesus in chapter 1, verse 3. It's the first beatitude of seven beatitudes in the Revelation. Well, I looked up all the direct commands in the Revelation so far. There are a few specific commands to John, like write and measure and come up here or take the scroll and eat it. Uh, Last week, we heard this uh, command, come out of her, my people. But in 16 of 25 commands so far, John and us have been commanded to look, or as it gets translated sometimes, behold. Look, behold, and now 1910, finally, worship. Worship God. So if you've been confused, this is the point. This is what God wants, worship, proskuneo in Greek. Pros is a prefix meaning toward. Kuneo means to kiss. It's where we probably get the German word uh, Kuss or the English word kiss. To worship is to kiss with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. God wants worship, he wants a kiss. The kiss may manifest in an infinite number of ways, but at the heart, it must always be proscuneo, a passionate kiss offered in freedom. January of 1978, I took Susan Coleman to see Close Encounters of the Third Kind. It was our first day and I, I planned to kiss her. I was something of, of a beast at the time. I didn't really know her, but I saw that she was good for food and a delight to the eyes. So I walked her to the door, I said night, and I planted a big old wet one right on those beautiful lips. It was like kissing a post. She was afraid. She didn't trust me, she, she didn't know me, and so her heart, mind, soul, and strength, they were divided. She kissed me with her lips, but her heart was far from me. If there was like a rating system for all the kisses in the history of the world, that kiss would have easily ranked like in the bottom five, 10% of all kisses that have ever been, been kissed. It was an absolutely terrible kiss, so I pulled out a gun, pointed at her head, and I said, kiss me or else. Actually, I, I didn't do that because that's an, an almost entirely ineffectual way of obtaining high-quality kisses. Don't know if if you knew that, but it's true. You know, Scripture says very clearly in three places, every knee will bow and every tongue will give praise. And many people have told me that that means for most people uh, that praise will come at the point of a gun or some other instrument of torment or fear. But you see, that's that's an entirely ineffectual way of obtaining high-quality kisses. So how do you obtain high-quality kisses? Do, do you threaten? Do you pay? Is that the way? According to Scripture, there was one kiss or one set of kisses from a kisser that probably ranked just about the best in all the history of the world and all the history of kisses, and Jesus was the one that obtained those kisses. Might have even been on a first date. Probably, probably the second. Luke chapter 7, Jesus dines at the house of a Pharisee when a harlot falls at his feet, weeping, anointing his feet with perfume, tears, and kisses. When Simon the Pharisee expresses his disapproval, Jesus turns to him and says, You gave me no kiss, but from the time that I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. Now that's proskuneo, proskuneo. She has not ceased to kiss my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which were many, are forgiven. They're they're let go. They're they're gone. Don't care about them anymore because I got what I wanted. Her sins, which were many, are forgiven for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. Question for you. Do you think that you have sinned much? If it would help, look around the room and ask the question, you know, do you think that you have sinned much? If not, you must not believe that you've been forgiven much, and so you must not be a very good kisser, and you're not a worshiper. Well, anyway, that's how Jesus makes good kissers good kissers and that's what God wants, an entire world of non-stop proskuneo and that's what the revelation is all about, how the bride is made ready. Immediately after Jesus tells the weeping kissing former harlot that her sins are forgiven in Luke 7, two verses later we're introduced uh, to Mary of Magdalene in Luke chapter 8. Some say that she was married to Jesus, I doubt that's true And yet, of course, like we said last time, that must be true. It is true because we are all Mary. We're Mary, but where the harlot once stood, suddenly the bride of Christ appears. Let's read our text. Revelation 19, verse 1, after this, after what? Well, what we preached on last week, chapter 18, the judgment of the great harlot. As we saw, the great harlot is a world ruler of this present darkness, She's an economy of pornea. That's the attempt to buy and sell love. She's a city, and in particular, Babylon, Rome, and especially Jerusalem. And ever since we took the good to make ourselves good, we've become pretty great harlots, too, right? In the last chapter, the Lord Christ, come out of her, come out of her, my people. And just like those that worship the beast, these people participating in Pornea appear to be all the people who dwell on the surface of the earth. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven. I think we're supposed to ask, where the hell did all these people come from? We just witnessed the annihilation of all people on the surface of the earth, and now this great multitude in heaven starts worshiping. They sound like the multitude in Revelation chapter 5, which was every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is within them. All. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying, Hallelujah. You know, this is the first place in the New Testament that that word Hallelujah shows up. And what we're about to read, the next... uh, the next, what is it, uh, three instances are the only places in all the New Testament that that word shows up. Hallelujah is a Hebrew interjection that means praise Yahweh. Praise Yahweh, or in Greek, worship God. If you, if you count Hebrew interjections, this is also an imperative command, worship God. So we're being told in Greek and Hebrew, worship God! After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. Notice that they are not worshiping God because they've avoided God's judgment. They're worshiping God because they just witnessed God's judgment. It's just, which means it's right. It's just like the end of Isaiah 66, verses that used to scare me more than any in all the Bible and now they fill me with the most hope in all the Bible. All flesh worships the Lord, for all flesh they walk out to the edge of the new Jerusalem and see their old flesh, their own corpses burning in the valley of Gehenna. They have been judged and delivered from themselves. Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great Porne, who corrupted the earth with her pornea, and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. That's the blood that's wine, and the wine that's blood. That's the vengeance we bleed when we forgive our enemies. That's the double vengeance that we preached about last time. Once more, they cried out, hallelujah, the smoke from her goes up forever and ever, literally for ages and ages. Smoke can mean many things. Here, it may just mean that evil is destroyed. But in chapter 8, it referred to the pleasing aroma of sacrifice. This is your spiritual worship, writes Paul. This is your logical worship, writes Paul that you would present yourself a living sacrifice. You know, sacrifice is utterly terrifying from the perspective of the earth or the vantage point of the harlot. It's losing your life, your psyche. But from the standpoint of heaven or the heart of a bride, it might be something entirely different. Losing yourself and finding yourself losing your life and finding your life losing your fig lives and finding your husband your helper remember adam humanity could not find his his helper well this is love wrote john not that we loved god but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins love is sacrifice So from the standpoint of the harlot, love is inconceivable. But from the standpoint of the groom and the bride, it may be all that matters. A communion of self-sacrifice called love. Well, God is love, who freely and constantly gives himself for all verse 4. And and the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God, who was seated on the throne, saying, Amen. It's true. Hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. And then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the almighty, all-powerful, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her, it was given to her, to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. This is a direct reference to Isaiah chapter 61, which we read last week, in which Jesus quotes in the synagogue in Luke 4 about what he's come to do. It starts with this reference to the cross as the day of vengeance, and then it describes the double vengeance of God's grace, and then in verse Verse 10, we read this. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He's covered me with the robe of righteousness, as a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the earth brings forth its sprouts, and as a garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations. 19, verse 8, it was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Now, the harlot, if you remember, was also clothed in fine linen. So a harlot can look just like a bride. The harlot was clothed in fine linen, but it wasn't given to her. She paid for it, at least in her own mind, she paid for it, the righteous deeds. The fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. The saints are us. A saint has been stripped of his or her her ego and, and fig leaves and clothed with the righteousness of Christ or the righteousness that is Christ, her husband. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those, seven Beatitudes in the Revelation, this is the fourth. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the lamb, the marriage feast of the lamb. Just just before he was crucified, Jesus told a parable about a king who held a marriage supper for his son. He invited all that he could find. He invited the good and the bad, Uh, according to Jesus in the parable in Matthew. All, all are called, but one is chosen. At the wedding banquet, the friend of the king has no wedding garment. The king chooses to throw this friend into outer darkness. I think that friend is his son, and our Lord, and the bridegroom. He has no wedding garment, for it has been given to all of us his bride. He who knew no sin became sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God, writes Paul. He is our righteousness, says Paul. Every good deed in you is the fruit of his Spirit in you. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faith, fruit of the Spirit in you. He clothes us with his robe, of righteousness we preached on that a couple of years ago and you can find the message on our website the clothes make the man august 30th 2015 one of my favorites you should check it out verse nine and he said to me these are the true words of god then i fell down at his feet uh, to worship him but he said to me you must not do that i am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of jesus now this is all just weird because this Angel appears to be one of the seven bull angels who come from the temple in heaven, who are dressed just like Jesus, who remind us of the seven spirits of God sent out into all uh, the earth and to the seven churches. If the angel is not the spirit of Jesus, it sure reminds us of the spirit of Jesus, the spirit of the helper that is the helper. Adam couldn't find his helper. The Holy Spirit is God, but nowhere in scripture that I could find are we told to worship the Holy Spirit. And yet over and over and over again, we're told to worship in, by, through, empowered by, filled with the Holy Spirit. Jesus is our husband and helper, but in John 16 he promises to send another helper who dwelt with them and will be in them, the Spirit of truth. The helper helps us recognize our helper who is the truth and the life. The helper is the Spirit of Jesus who helps us trust our Heavenly Father. The helper helps us worship in spirit and in truth, and such the Father seeks to worship him, the helper. And now we have come to a mystery beyond our comprehension. For it's the boundary, I think, of eternity and time. It's the boundary of God and us. It's the boundary of Jesus and the old Adam. 1 Corinthians 6.16, Paul writes this. Do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute, to a porne, becomes one body with her? That's an amazing thing. He says, do not know that he who is joined to a porne becomes one body with her, but he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Do you get that? When we commune in worship with God, our spirit is God's spirit and God's spirit is our spirit, and maybe, maybe the true us. No longer us, but Christ in us. I think that's faith, hope, and love in us. It just, it just makes your head spin. But whatever the case, we now know what it is that God wants. The angel says, worship God! And that's what God wants, a good kiss. About 38 years ago, October 30th, 1982, I received a kiss that surely ranks among the very best kisses in the, in the history, history of the world. I just dropped to my knees and said, Susan, would you marry me? And she literally knocked me off my knees, back onto the floor, onto my can with kisses, a flood of kisses. Susan had never been a harlot except, of course, in in the way that we're all harlots. But before that night, you see, all of her kisses had been laced with fear. First Corinthians six, Paul Paul writes that the person who participates in porneia wounds his or her own body, whereas with other sins, we wound other people's bodies. See, see with pornea, we bind our body to another body that then becomes one body and then we tear that body apart leaving a wound that eventually becomes callous and, and, and hard, like a hard heart until God heals that heart with the double vengeance that we preached about last week. Grace. If you spend much time in scripture, you'll be surprised to find that God doesn't seem to have as much of a problem with the joining together as he does with the tearing apart. After all, we will be or or are all joined together in him. There's one body, writes Paul. Well, anyway, my point is before October 30th, 1982, Susan worried about losing my love as well as earning my love and so her kisses were laced with fear but once she believed my covenant promise to always love there was no fear of losing my love and there was no more love to be earned and therefore no more failure to to be feared the covenant meant that she could no longer pay for me because me was free just free absolutely free and so she kissed me in freedom just because she wanted to, as she wished. As we preached several months ago, in Jesus' day, a boy would propose to a girl by offering her a cup of wine. The cup of wine represented the blood of a covenant. If she drank from the cup, she accepted the wedding proposal. When Jesus offered the cup to his disciples, he was proposing to them and setting them free, free from fear, so that they could have faith in love. Don't forget that everything we've witnessed in chapter 17, 18, and 19, the destruction of the harlot, the appearance of the bride, everything happens because at the end of the sixth day, start of the seventh day, as the seventh bowl of wrath is poured out on the earth, Jesus Christ, it is done, and he gives Jerusalem a cup. A cup of wine that's blood and blood that's wine. The harlot is destroyed, and the bride suddenly appears because the woman is made to drink the cup of double vengeance, which is is grace. The bride appears where the harlot was. The bride looks as the harlot did, but the bride is entirely different. Entirely. The harlot dressed herself in gold, jewels, and pearls. The bride is gold, jewels, and pearls. The harlot was trying to make herself beautiful to get what she wanted. The bride is beautiful, for she knows that she is wanted by the groom. The harlot glorified herself, the bride glorifies her groom and is glorified. The harlot was in bondage to herself, but the bride has lost herself. For the harlot, love was a law, the knowledge of good to make herself good. For the bride, love is a life, a communion of life, which is the good. The harlot was in control, the bride has surrendered control. The harlot kissed for some other reason. For the bride Kisses are the reason. The kisses of the bride are free. You might think the harlot is free and the bride is in bondage, but the harlot has chosen a lie, and a lie is untruth, and untruth is non-being. To choose a lie is to bind yourself within the deepest of all prisons. The harlot chooses the lie and is in bondage to the father of lies. The bride is chosen by the truth and thus set free. Remember what we said in chapter 11 when we talked about the ark and the temple. We said if, if you had free will, you would never deliberate between choices. Your will would be unrestrained by any other will. Your will would be unrestrained by any law. You would constantly will what you want and want what you will. Everything would be as you wish. And you would be God. Or God would be sitting on the throne in the sanctuary of your soul with you in a communion. A communion of love. Well, if a bride wants to kiss her husband, this is what I'm saying, the kisses are free. And free kisses are the very best kisses, and that is what God wants. And that must be the reason for all the drama, the fencing, the fighting, the torture, the revenge, the giants, the monsters, and the miracles in the book of Revelation. You read this, you think, what the heck? Why all this stuff? It must also be the reason for all the fencing, fighting, torture, revenge, giants, monsters, chases, escapes, true love, and miracles in your life. God is the author, and He's telling you the story, and that's what He wants. Proscuneo. FREE KISSES! Kinda like this. A book? That's right. When
1: I was your age, television was called books. And this is a special book. It was the book my father used to read to me when I was sick, and I used to read it to your father. And today, I'm gonna to read it to you. it it got any sports in it? Are you kidding? Fencing, fighting, torture, revenge, giants, monsters, chases, escapes, true love, miracles. Doesn't sound too bad. I'll try and stay awake. Oh, well, thank you very much. Very nicely. Your vote of confidence is overwhelming. All right. The Prince's Bride... Buttercup was raised on a small farm in the country of Florin. Her favorite pastimes were riding her horse and tormenting the farm boy that worked there. His name was Wesley, but she never called him that. Isn't that a wonderful beginning? Yeah, it's really good. Nothing gave Buttercup as much pleasure as ordering Wesley around. Farm boy, polish my horse's saddle. I want to see my face shining in it by morning. As you wish. As you wish was all he ever said. Farm boy, fill these with water. Please. As you wish. That day, she was amazed to discover that when he was saying, As you wish, what he meant was, I love you. Hold it, hold it. What is this? Are you trying to trick me? Where's the sports? Is this a kissing book? Wait, just yes, wait.
0: The Revelation is a kissing book. And now I'm kind of banking on the fact that you've all seen The Princess Bride. It's the classic fairy tale. In his book, Orthodoxy, G.K. Chesterton writes this, The things I believed most then, the things I believe most now, are the things called fairy tales. They seem to me to be the entirely reasonable things. It is not earth that judges heaven. It's heaven that judges earth. All week I've been wrestling with with another book, Philosophical Fragments, published in 1844 by Soren Kierkegaard. It's a philosophical discourse in which he asks this question, how could a mortal person ever come to know the truth, eternal truth? He wrestles with another question posed by Socrates, this age-old question, how could we seek the truth if we never knew the truth. And if we knew the truth, why would we ever seek it? Kierkegaard twists it around and suggests that the truth is seeking us and has created or does create the condition or capacity within us to to recognize truth when the truth comes to visit. I don't think I understand Kierkegaard all that well, but fortunately he tells a fairy tale in philosophical fragments. He tells the story of a great and powerful king who from a distance fell in love with a humble maiden, a farm girl, and then earnestly desired that she would return his love. He earnestly desired her kisses, her free kisses. But suddenly this king is seized with a great problem and a tremendous sorrow. Kierkegaard writes, Love is triumphant when it makes that which was unequal equal in love. The king realizes that he and his beloved are unequal. If he elevates her to his position, before he wins her love, he would never know, but even more, she would never know if she loved him truly, if she loved him in freedom. If he forced her to marry him, it it wouldn't be free and it wouldn't be love. In fact, if he merely revealed himself as king, it wouldn't be free and might not be love. Not true love. If he revealed his riches and the glory of his kingdom, he wouldn't know and she wouldn't know if it was him she loved or his kingdom. She might love him for one of a million other reasons, but if you love someone for any reason other than love, it's not free. It's not true love. It's harlotry. You can't love for some other reason, because love is the reason. And so the king realized that he had but one choice, and that was to surrender his kingdom, his wealth, his power for the sake of love. He must sacrifice all for love and to love. No choice but to leave his castle and become a servant and even more a slave in the hope that his wish would somehow become her wish and he could receive her kisses in freedom. The truth is king, according to Kierkegaard. The truth is king, and we are all imprisoned in lies, and Kierkegaard refers to this descent of the king, this descent of the king as the miracle. In the words of St. Paul, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, and being found in human form, he humbled himself, becoming obedient unto death, even death on a cross. Jesus, King of Kings, became a farm boy, just like Wesley in The Princess Bride, and said, as you wish, as you wish, as you wish. He said it all the way to the point of death upon a cross. That is the romance of God. It was the harlot that nailed Jesus to that tree in the garden. It was you and me that took his life and claimed it as our own. It was our wish, and it was the romance of God to grant it. But now, I I cannot just say at this point, hey, y'all, everybody, hey, listen closely. That was the king that we nailed to that tree. That was the king on the cross. I can't just say that and then expect all of us harlots to simply choose to turn ourselves into the bride. That was Kierkegaard's point and why the king humbled himself in the first place. So, so we would love him in weakness for who he is and not for what he has, his kingdom. Say, I can't do that. And yet that's just what we the church have so often often done. It's, it's, it's the easiest thing. It's the obvious thing for us fleshly pastors. We say something like, like this. Jesus is the king. And if you want his kingdom, just call him Lord. But Jesus said, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, and I will say to them, depart from me. I never knew you. The truth does not know untruth. That is the harlot. The truth knows his bride. You see, I I think we think we're making converts and perhaps we're just making better harlots. Harlots who think they possess the king but have no clue as to who he is. He is true love. You know, a harlot is a woman that's paid to pretend she's the bride. So, if a harlot simply decides to be a bride, she'll simply become a much better harlot, (laughs) like the Pharisees. The Pharisees wanted the kingdom and so dressed themselves up like the bride, but couldn't recognize the king, even when he hung on a tree right in front of them. We cannot solve the problems we have created with the same thinking that created them, wrote Albert Einstein. We created the harlot with our desire to take the knowledge of the good, and now we can't fix ourselves by taking more knowledge and trying harder. To be a bride is not the harlot's desire. To be a giver is not the taker's desire. To choose the truth is not the liar's desire. You can't just desire an entirely new desire. To love is not merely a human desire. It's not our wish. The harlot can't choose to become the bride because the harlot is the choice to control love rather than to surrender to love. The harlot isn't free because she's chosen evil and evil is an illusion. The harlot is not and the bride is who I am. See, it it must be Incredibly significant that the harlot doesn't choose to become the bride the harlot must be destroyed That's what we read last week the harlot must be destroyed so something new can be like born in her place Jesus said to Nicodemus a Pharisee you must be born again You see no one simply chooses to to be born But maybe a new self can be born from an old self But nonetheless, it's not something that that you simply do to his disciples. Jesus said this you didn't choose me I chose you. The harlot can't dress herself in her own good deeds, pretend to be the bride, and so become the bride. She must be stripped of her fig leaves and her harlotry, and something else must give her deeds, someone else must give her deeds, the deeds with which to dress herself, and make herself ready for the king, his kingdom, and the great banquet. In Jesus' day, like I said, if a girl drank from the cop, and accepted the boy's proposal, the boy would then leave to prepare a place for her. Meanwhile, she would make herself ready light her lamp, wait for him. For he would often come like a thief at an unexpected hour. It was kind of like a a custom even in that day. He would come at an unexpected hour in order to take her back to his village and the the wedding banquet where they would consummate consummate their, their marriage as everyone then celebrated their union for an entire week. I mean, it was the best party around. Well, just the boy's departure after the proposal, you see, would prepare a place for the bride a place in her own heart called hope. Hope that would then be filled with faith. Faith that would then be answered and filled with love, her bridegroom's love. I mean, she would become his sanctuary and he would become her sanctuary. He would create her choice with his choice and then nurture that choice with romance. Well, Jesus' death and resurrection is the romance of God. He died once and for all, all people in all space, all of time. So you see, the King, King Jesus, the King, I think, is still coming to us in weakness. God, the author of this story, is still arranging all things so that you would see him when he does. And both have sent their spirit so you would recognize him when you see him. So you would freely wish what God has always wished, and that's for a kiss freely offered to him from you, Proscuneo. John 12, Jesus says this. When I am lifted up from the earth, and he was speaking of his cross, says John. When I am lifted up from the earth, I will helkuo. It's this verb translated draw, but it's also translated romance. I will romance all people to myself. In John 6, Jesus had already told us, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me, Helkuo, draws him, romances him. See, it's not only Jesus that romances you, The Father arranges all things that you would be romanced. And they both send their spirit, the breath of God. That's the miracle in us. And so, according to plan, in the fullness of time, at just the right moment, God in Christ Jesus lifted his head on the cross, cried, It is finished, and delivered up his breath, his spirit. I think maybe that's the same spirit that made us human in the first place. I know it's the same spirit that fell on the church at Pentecost. It's the same spirit that whispers to you in the dark of the night, have hope. The same spirit that helps you recognize your helper. God is your helper. Your husband, Adam, God is your helper. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, they are all romancing you. The Father has arranged all things, even a tree in the middle of the garden, a garden in which you did as you wished even a choice to seize control and make yourself a beast and a harlot even the events that threaten that control like earthquakes famines heartbreaks tribulation troubles monsters and death remember what god said to hosea his harlot his and uh, he said to hosea about his harlot bride remember he said hosea you marry a harlot cuz i'm married to a harlot and then he said this to hosea about his harlot bride he said hosea behold i will allure her i'll romance her I will bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. I will make the valley of trouble a door of hope. And then, and then, Israel, you will call me my husband. The Father arranges all things. He is love. The Father arranges all things. And Jesus still comes to us in weakness. He is the truth. He is the tender word that's spoken. You know, we think it's nothing, right? Someone speaks it to you, you think it's nothing. It's the King of Kings. He's the truth in every story. We think it's weak. It is infinitely, eternally strong. He's the love that we encounter in people we meet every day. We think, you know, it's just a a nice idea. (laughs) It's the idea that holds all things together. He is the beauty in every flower. He's the logic in every moment. He's the rhythm in every song. The mere idea of you. The longing here for you. You'll never know how slow the moments go till I'm near to you. I see your face in every flower. Your eyes in stars above. The very thought of you. The mere idea of you, my love. The Father arranges all things. Jesus still comes to us in weakness, and it is the Spirit in our souls that causes us to hope and then have faith faith in love, who is our husband. True love is our husband. In The Princess Bride, Wesley has no money. So he leaves the farm to seek his fortune across the sea. Wesley says to Buttercup, hear this now, I will always come for you. Buttercup asks, how can you be sure? Because, he replies, this is true love. Wesley is abducted by the dread pirate Roberts, as I hope you know, who is said to never leave his prisoners alive. When Buttercup hears the news, she sinks into despair and agrees to marry the evil liar Prince Humperdinck. She is to receive an entire kingdom, but she does not love the king. And yeah, that kind of makes her into something of a a harlot. Just before she's to wed, she's abducted by some thieves and then by the dread pirate Roberts himself. He wrecks her world, takes away all her control. She thinks that she's going to die. She doesn't realize that it's actually true love having come to set her free. She doesn't know it's Wesley. Wesley, who inherited the position of head pirate and immediately uses his freedom to come and find Buttercup. She doesn't know it's Wesley, and Wesley doesn't know if she still loves him. She wishes, she wishes, she wishes when she, until she knows that she wishes to kill him. And then she wishes to die with him.
1: You killed my love
0: possible. He died well. That should please you. No bribe attempts or blubbering. He simply said please. Please I need to live. It was the please that caught my memory. I asked him what was so important for him. True love he replied. And then he spoke of a girl of surpassing beauty and faithfulness. I can only assume he meant you. You should bless me for destroying him before he found out what you really are. And what am I? Faithfulness he talked of, madam. Your enduring faithfulness. Now tell me truly, when you found out he was gone, did you get engaged to your prince that same hour or did you wait a whole week out of respect for the dead? You mocked me once.
1: Never do it again. I died that day. You can die, too, for all I care. Oh. As you wish. Oh, my sweet Wesley.
0: What have I done? Whoa.
1: I told you I would always come for you.
0: Why didn't you wait for me?
1: Well, you were dead.
0: Death cannot stop true love. All it can do is delay it for a while.
1: I will never doubt again.
0: There will never be a need.
1: Oh, no. No, please. What is it? What's the matter? kissing again. Do we have to hear the kissing part? Someday you may not mind so much.
0: Well, anyway, the evil Prince Humperdinck. What happens next is he captures both Wesley and Buttercup. He tells Buttercup that now she must marry him. That's Buttercup's nightmare. It's her nightmare. And so she literally wakes from her nightmare, if you remember, and tells Humperdinck that she'd rather die. Meanwhile, Humperdinck kills Wesley with infinite suffering in the pit of despair. But it turns out that Wesley is not all dead, he's only mostly dead. And so he's raised uh, by a miracle through Miracle Max, and yet he's incredibly weak. In weakness, Wesley and his friends rescue Buttercup, and then, and then, she gives him a kiss. Since the invention of the kiss, There had been five kisses that were rated the most passionate, the most pure. This one left them all behind. She wished what Wesley had always wished. And so the kiss was entirely free. I'm saying that the Revelation is a kissing book. And your life is a kissing book, or at least a kissing story. God, your Father, is the author of the story. Jesus is the bridegroom, and you are the bride. Even now, the Spirit may be whispering in those painful places in your soul. It's true. It's all the romance of God. The fencing, the fighting, the torture, the revenge, the giants, the monsters, the chaos, the escapes, the true love, and the miracles. They're all because God is creating a new desire within you. The desire to love him the way he has always loved you. Absolutely. And in perfect freedom.
1: The road to freedom. And as dawn arose, Wesley and Buttercup knew they were safe. A wave of love swept over them. And as they reached for each other... What? What? No, it's kissing again. You don't want to hear that. I don't mind so much. Okay. Since the invention of the kiss, there have been five kisses that were rated the most passionate, the most pure. This one left them all behind. The end. Now, I think you ought to go to sleep. Okay. Okay. Uh, Okay. okay all right hello so Grandpa Maybe you could come over and read it again to me tomorrow as you
0: wish. At this point in the sermon I'm always tempted to give us, you and me, a list of things that we ought to do. Things that a beloved bride would do. But you see, that's like giving advice to a harlot on how to become a better harlot. God does not want you to act like a bride. He wants you to be his bride. so I'll just tell the story I'll preach the gospel he took bread and broke it saying this is my body given to you take and eat and in the same way he took the cup saying this this is the covenant in my blood drink of it all of you And so, may you come to the table, and then, if you'd like, feel free to worship as you wish. Amen? Martin Luther famously said, love God and do as you please that's called worship. And that's what God desires—free love. And so, whatever you do, um, it can can be worship—eating nachos after the service, talking to the people in this room, singing songs to God, studying Scripture, going to work. work. It's all to be a worship. But, But now, the moment I say that, something will lie to you. It will raise a question in your mind, and that is, well, how do you know? I mean, maybe, maybe you're a beast, maybe you're a harlot, and you see, you kind of are. And so we worry, well, God, maybe what I did then was a little bit of harlotry and not really love, or that was kind of beastly and not really very human of me, not, not like you. And you'll begin to judge yourself. Um, don't judge yourself turns out that you cannot judge yourself, you cannot separate between that old man and that new man. And if that fills you with fear, don't fear, because the next thing that happens in the Revelation is absolutely astounding. It used to be the scariest part maybe for me of the whole book, and now I think maybe it's the best. In three weeks, we'll come back and look at it. Um, next week, we're going to have a law service and then Carl's preaching, but that's good because that will give you time to just read over chapter 19 and ask yourself a lot of questions. But the next thing that happens is that the King of Kings rides in on a white horse and he's called the Word, and the Word judges. The Word separates. The Word redeems and does what we cannot do. So. I'm just saying, love God and do as you please. In Jesus' name, amen.